Books and Books had the pleasure recently of hosting a virtual event with Jim Carrey and his co-author Dana Vachon. On this episode of The Literary Life, we present that evening celebrating the publication of their recent novel, Memoirs and Misinformation. Along with Jim and Dana, the special guest introducer that night was the incomparable Judy Bloom, author and bookseller. Please enjoy. Welcome, everyone, and thank you all so much for joining us tonight for Jim and Dana's one and only virtual event. We're really excited about this uh, to celebrate their fantastic new novel, Memoirs and Misinformation. Lucky me, I get to introduce someone who needs no introduction, but that doesn't mean I didn't jump at the chance to do it because, you know, Jim Carrey, I'm a fangirl from way back. So far back that now you might uh, say I'm a fan gran. <laughs> and yes, Jim, you're still in my boy book. From Ace Ventura to The Truman Show to Eternal Sunshine, I can never say it, of The Spotless Mind, and now to Kidding, and those are just some of my favorites. We know you for your work uh, as an energetic, imaginative, sometimes wildly, sometimes wild, always funny and endearing performer. And you know what? Those are exactly the words I would use to describe your new book. I don't know how you and Dana have pulled this off, but you've captured it all in a book that I really loved. I think it's exactly what we need now. And Dana Vashan, hello, Dana. You are the author. I know you know this, but everyone else doesn't. You're the author of another novel called Mergers and Acquisitions. Your essays and journalism have appeared in the New York Times, in Slate and Vanity Fair. And I think you seem like the perfect writing partner for Jim. Funny and spontaneous. And you get the pathos that lies just beneath the surface of the characters. And now I want to show you a copy of the book. I can't see it, but I hope you can. Is it there? Yeah, there it is. Wait a second, let me show it to you. A copy of the book, and this is a very special copy because da 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 da. Inside, it's not only signed by Jim and Dana, but Jim has painted his signature mango. And the news about this book is that one of you in the audience, one very lucky person chosen at random, is going to go out to the mailbox and find this copy and it will be yours to keep. I envy you that. <laughs> um, now, in a minute, I'm going to turn this over to tonight's moderator, Mitchell Kaplan. Mitch uh, is the founder of our beloved Books and Books bookstores. And if that weren't enough, he also is the founder of the Miami Book Fair. Without Mitch, I wouldn't be a bookseller. So I call him my guru, and I'm proud to also call him my friend. Now, please help me welcome Jim Carrey and Dana Vachon. Hi, Judy. Hello. Hello. How are you? Hello, Dana. Hello. But wait, Hi. wait, wait, wait. Are you there, Jim? Are you there, Jim? It's me, Judy. Yes, Judy. Oh, oh, I'm, here. I'm trying to weigh myself down with this rock because having you introduce us has just made me weigh this. Jim, come, come, back. Down. come, Jim, come. Oh. come back. It's our there opening. you are. He anchors there me. You there are. you go. There you are. It's Hi, Judy. You both. And now I'm going to leave you with Mitch for a little while, and I'll see you later. Thank you Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Along with her husband, George, in the studios of Key West, I can think of no better bookstore partners. Um, it's so cool to meet people, as Jim and Dana probably know, people who make pilgrimages to Key West 
with their kids just to introduce them to the great Judy Bloom. Her work is so, so timeless. And uh, so welcome, Dana, and welcome, Jim. It's and so her face makes the sun jealous. Yeah, exactly. Don't you think? Exactly right. Exactly right. And listen, you're going to have to, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit, but I just want to say something. Both of you have written something wondrous. It's genre defining. And piggybacking on what Judy said, though I know your films, Jim, and lots of your work, I just wasn't prepared for how stunned I was. You know, at times, it really, it's true. At times, I felt, it felt like I was reading Vonnegut on acid. The Vonnegut That's of Siren, the Sirens of Titan Vonnegut. But other times, I was overcome with a lyricism that reminded me of the best of Michael Andaje, who wrote Running in the Family, another kind of memoir that was, you know, kind of made up in many places. Um, I was riveted, I was moved, it was cathartic, it was voyeuristic. It tested my notions of fame, of time, of reality itself. But I have to say that mostly it was just a hell of a lot of fun. It was a great mashup of everything Jim Carrey. And I can't thank you guys enough for coming tonight. But I also want to say on a personal note, I thank both of you for supporting independent booksellers as much as you do and in the message that you always give to all of us. So, so important. So you guys are the lifeblood of, uh, of this world, of the literary world. You're the pulmonary system. You well, pump thanks. ideas through our veins, and it's wonderful. So, so the question that I have, and the question that a lot of people have is, what brought you guys together? We write a book. <laughs> the Aeneid. The Aeneid. I, I, I went to Jim's painting studio in the West Village, and he was painting scenes from a life. And I thought, and I had in high school, translated a little bit of Aeneid uh, slowly, but enough to recognize this is the moment when Aeneas walks into the temple of Juno and sees the scenes of the destruction of Troy. And there was a painting of Malibu in flames. There was a self portrait that had been slashed and stitched back together. And I thought, wow. well, there's something, clearly there's a narrative here. And then we started talking and we realized we were both insomniacs. And yes, absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and that's true. I was uh, slashing myself and sticking myself back together again. I've, I've done that a few times. And uh, yeah, we started talking about all this. And, uh, and we went from the Aeneid to uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, you know, uh, traveling the world together and uh, connected. You know, I'm, I'm hoping the worm won't come out of his nose anytime soon. <laughs> you're, you're ahead of me in line. <laughs> <laughs> no, and all of that made it into the book for those who haven't read it yet. You know, I'm very jealous of all of those people out in Zoom land who haven't read this yet because- So good to have the, the shut-ins aboard. Yeah, I know. Wonderful. There are thousands of people out there. Wonderful. And uh, I envy them because they're in for this great treat to be able to experience your book for the very first time. And you got the Epic of Gilgamesh right in the book as well, didn't you? That's right. Me and Rodney. <laughs> so what was it like for both of you to be working on this book by while I think you were living on opposite ends of the country, weren't you, at the time? Yeah, we were the meeting of the coasts. It's never happened before. Had it's a time of peace yeah, we used in to, the artistic world. We were always, we used to, we marveled like halfway through that America is one of the only countries that separates film and television and like a lot of media by, you know, a mountain range and a bunch of, de like, you know, thousands of miles. That and is was, true. And it was great to get together and it was a conversation. It was a Skype conversation over years. Yeah. Um, we were uh, exploring all kinds of apocrypha on uh, social media and YouTube and all those things and uh, kind of exploring it together, uh, this uh, crazy history. And, we've, we, and we started to notice actually how, how much of our, you know, our actual uh, cultures are that. You know, things that are made up, uh, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and uh, going back to Dante and uh, the Inferno. And uh, it's... it's uh, it's a grand tradition. And uh, so it started out as kind of a mind meld. You guys were just sort of kind of going, you know, sort of playing off each other and talking about life in the world. After we first met, I remember we, it was a little bit of working and I thought, well, he's really wonderful and brilliant. And, you know, I'll probably never hear from that guy again. <laughs> and then I like looked at him, I was in Park Slope in early bed with like, I think I was stealing a neighbor's Wi-Fi, And like the phone rings and it's Jim Carrey. And he's like, what are you doing, man? I'm like, I don't know, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, and he was watching the Barrymore Jekyll and Hyde 
on net on what was early Netflix, and actually which ended up informing the story because Mao kind of becomes right. the hide. He's the hide to Carrie's jackal, right? Sure, a little sure, bit in the book. absolutely. And well, every part I do is the hide. Right. I'm always talking about the hide. When I when I hit a stage, when I get in front of people, you know, the the guy that walks in with the fake rock is is hide. He's a right. friendly hide, but he's he's Mr. Hide. Sometimes I get off stage and I, I think to myself. I wasn't there at all. <laughs> I just took over, you know, and uh, right. this book, although we are, you know, playing with characters and playing with falsities, uh, we, we really captured something deeper, you know, than, than the words. I think if you're, really, if you're really interested in knowing who I am, it's, it's buried not far from the surface of, this, uh, of these wild imaginings. Well, you know, you say about this book that None of this is real, and all of it is true, right? Isn't that yeah. isn't that kind of sum up the book to a large extent? Um, so, to, to sort of follow up on that, how does a fictional memoir get the reader closer to the truth of somebody more than a memoir might? Is there any other kind of memoir? Tell them about your glossary. There you <laughs> go. Tell, tell them about, there's a new edition of, of Bill Clinton's memoir that has a, it has a, a different component. The glossary of creepy things I left out. <laughs> You know, I think that would make it honest. <laughs> you have to be careful. It's a Kanaf book. They may, they may actually decide to put it out. We so have a dispensation. <laughs> pick, up, pick that up and run with it. It'd be great. Um, We're exhausted, so. <laughs> so, so you know, we always thought that, that the memoir was this very problematic form because there's, at the very least, there's lies of omissions. Often you're not even being told the truth about who did the lying. Because yeah. it's a different person who wrote it. Or a complete reordering <laughs> of, of the, the events so that it looks good. Well, you know, when I read this, you know, when I read this, I don't know what's true and what's not, but it, it doesn't really matter because I got a sense of who you were. Because yeah. what this does is explains your own philosophy about life, your philosophy about religion, your philosophy and about how politics, I think as a comic. I how mean, you think as a comic. In Italy, in Rome, where I, uh, I kind of scope out what the physical bit that I'm about to do is really how I think. Every time I take a chance on being funny at a dinner party or wherever, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm generally up against uh, expectation and, uh, and maybe I'm saying something a little dangerous and you never quite know. So you're always gauging as a comic within a split second, you have to make a decision of whether the tide's in and you can take the dive. You know, right, you're like a right. cliff Yeah. And, well, the scenes in Italy were just charming when you decided to dance with that woman on the, on the, on the palazzo. That was beautiful. You know what's great about this is I know that, you know, a couple of years from now, I'm going to have people coming up going, I was on the red carpet when you were in Italy. <laughs> and that whole thing happened. <laughs> you know, just like I have people all the time coming up and saying, you well, were such a cut up in school in uh, Jackson's Point where I never went to school. Right. Right. But, you know, the other thing that was really so charming about this and was so intimate was when you wrote about people that I know existed in your life, like your dad, right, who had such an influence on you early on, and particularly with the comedy. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. Well, my father was the funniest man in the world and uh, one of the sweetest men in the world. You know, uh, these uh, designations, these sainthoods, these uh, coronations are given to people who go into uh, foreign territories and beat back the natives, you know, and stick crosses around their necks and stuff like that. And I feel like, you know, guys like my dad should get it, you know, because he, he, if you knew him, if you, if you met him for five minutes, you felt like you had a friend for life and he would give you the shirt off his back and he, did everything he could to alter your day in a good way. So when I did Truman Show, there's always a little piece of my dad in all my work. And when I did Truman Show and I said, I wrote the line, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Uh, it was my way of expressing how my father wanted to stay with you and pump you up and give you joy. You know, not only when he was there, but he wanted it to last for you. You know, he, he had really wished people well. He was a lovely man. Well, and my mother is a different thing. She's the art, you know. She exploded in my life a few years ago, and uh, I got to spend time with her. I spent the first 40 years of my life exploring my father's talent and uh, the one that he gave me, and then suddenly mother's talent, you know, chimed in, and now I spend time with her by drawing and painting and sculpting. Talk about what that's meant to you, your, your drawing, your painting, 
your political cartoons? What what have all that? What has that meant in your life right I now? I need it like I need air. Yeah, uh, I have to create uh, in one way or another. I I would be lost without creating. Um, you know, I'm a complex mind, and uh, if I didn't spend it doing something I thought was constructive, then uh, I, would, I would probably eat myself alive. So that brings me to the book. So Dana and Jim, when did you know that this kind of mind meld was going to turn into a book? How did that sort of, when was the Eureka moment when you said this should be a book? I think there were, I had, there were multiple Eurekas, but there was one moment early on where after some conversation, he texted me and said, what do you have? And I just described, because we've been watching, I described the shared experience of insomniac Netflix viewing, which would become, which would inform the prologue. And I said to him, okay, well, there's this guy named Jim Carrey. And you know, like he's, and I just described the whole thing. And I, I actually sending the text, there was this pause. I thought, well, this, this, that's the end of this project. I, I, I'm definitely all of this. And, and he said, and I said, let me tell you something else about Jim Carrey he may have seen something shocking on one of these shows. He may have seen some autopsy photos. He may have become paranoid about what's gonna to happen to him when he, when he finally bites the dust, that he might be shared, you know, uh, there may be selfies in the morgue. And it gets him out of bed and uh, compels him to completely make himself up, do his hair, do some makeup, do some tweaks, cover the zits, dress in something nice so that he can go uh, and sleep with the solace of knowing that he will make a, a lovely corpse if he should fade in his sleep. And I knew I had a partner. <laughs> <laughs> At that point. And because that is, that is an exaggeration, but not really. I mean, it is a concern. Uh, you, you know, you look from everyone from Jesse James to John Lennon has been pictured you know, that, in that way. We had a lot of time on our hands during COVID and we read the David Ferry Gilgamesh and there's a beautiful line, two people together, companions can prevail against the terror. Yeah. Mm. Creating is, you know, can be terrifying. And it, but in that moment, I thought, okay, he and I can tackle anything that comes our way. We can yeah, and also this. the concept of, you know, having someone care about you, having someone miss you, you know, having family, having friends. And that's what you guys are all here for. So that I don't eat garbage in the next life. Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that just stuck out to me. That's funny. But there, there are things that stuck, that I wrote down as I, that I was going to it. And, and part of it is, um, you know, throughout, throughout the book, obviously, chaos is there. It's, it's, it's everywhere. The chaos of our world, the chaos of celebrity, the chaos of everything. And I was really struck by this terrific line and I don't know which of you wrote it, but whoever you did, congratulations. The ancient, <laughs> the ancient tug of war between sweet and savory. There's nothing, I mean, that's life, right? The ancient civil war between, or the ancient tug of war between sweet and savory. Talk about that a little bit in your own life. Yeah, well, I, I know that, you know, he was uh, inspired by uh, the ideas that I was talking about uh, in the Jim and Andy uh, documentary. Uh, came later. Was that it? Was it? Yeah. No, no, it, it was a free will experiment. But that, the Jim and Andy was like 2018. It was, oh, okay. But it, but it, but it was. It, it was the Sam Harris free will thing that you don't know what you do until yeah. after you do it. It was right. the same same yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah, I've been kind of ruminating on that for a long time. Yeah. So, is do we really have free will? But it's a, Why yeah. am I drinking the tea? Am I just, do I have dry lips? A free or? will experiment at the Saharan Motor Inn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My favorite place yeah. on Sunset. Yeah, no, no. Uh, another line that just popped out at me, and I'll throw it out to you, and you can just sort of riff on it. The mind is untrustworthy, a sewer of illusions, right? Buddhism. Yeah. yeah, is that is that a, is that a Buddhist? That there's a lot of Buddhism than I yeah, was. There's that a lot of Buddhism. There's a lot of uh, Advaita Vedanta in the book. You know, the the idea that there are no two things, and in fact, we had we had a narrator character. That was gonna that was going to be involved in the story and narrate the story, and then eventually he just <clears throat> dematerialized, and it became kind of the voice of wholeness that has an infinite knowledge of all its parts, you know. And you and I are its parts, you know. Yeah, Robert Wright released that book, Why Buddhism Is True, while we were working, and I thought he had a, a fascinating uh, anthropological view of 
the Buddhist idea that your brain is, is evolved to keep you alive, not to inform you as to what's around, right? And that's like a horrible thing to encounter because it's totally true. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And the body and the mind. So if that means making you a total neurotic <laughs> in civilization, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. Oh. Well, you know. Take hold and ruin everything. It's, uh, that's why we create. We want to put out instead of take in and fear everything. Well, you guys develop such a closeness where you seems like you can finish each other's sentences really to a large extent. So what surprising thing did you learn about each other during this collaboration? Not so surprising, but master storyteller. Yeah. Absolutely. Incredible prose, beautiful prose, yeah. poetic, gorgeous language. But, and we began to like, there was an extraneous beat. Uh, James Fox said this about Keith Richards, but to a far greater degree with Jim, Jim would know it. And if there was something precious, that was just beneath the floorboards, Jim would say, no, 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 if we tear up that linoleum, there's a mosaic underneath there. We got two more hours, we're gonna keep going. Yeah, I know, I grind, I grind. Early on in my career, I had dinner with uh, Jim Brooks and he instilled something in me. I said, what's the most important thing I should know? And he said, sweat the jokes. And it, it evolved into sweat the moments. Don't let moments go by when you know there's something to be had. You know, so I'm, I'm relentless that way. And, uh, you know, I think that we both kind of stepped into each other's territories and we learned from each other. So uh, we, we really melded minds at a certain point. And then we got to a point where you could tell when the other person was seeing something that you, so there's trust, but like there was an early moment, because, you know, you, it, you, you need a ton of trust to do this, right? So, um, where I think it's the chapter with the uh, seance in Malibu which was good, and it was a lot of it, but we read it's a lot. Of, it's, a, it's a retrieval. There, no, I, felt, I felt like I was in a sweat lodge during that. Uh, that during was the goal. Isn't that great? That was the goal. I, mean, I really felt like I was right there. But we know? read it the first time, and Jim's like, you know, like lovely stuff, man, but like what's missing here is, you know, Kelsey really wants to be the guru. <laughs> I've had this one where, you know, I invited a, a spiritual teacher so everybody could ask them questions. And there's always one person that doesn't let him answer. They spew out their personal philosophy and then they turn to the guru and go, right, am I right? And the guru was just putting Kelsey down, you know, let him finish. Let him finish. Yeah, he's just trying to control. So, Bucky, let's talk about that a little bit, because a lot of people don't know that you name check so many people in this book. Um, Nick Cage, Tom Hanks, Kanye West, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kelsey Grammer, Sean Penn. And that's just a fraction of the people that you mentioned. Um, tell us how you use them and why you use them. Well, it's a book about persona. It's about transcending persona. Uh, so you have to have some personas. You're in Hollywood. And we chose to use the people that have been renting space in our brains for the last few decades. We said we didn't invite them in. They hired teams. They did it. And cracked into our exactly. brains. Exactly. And so, they're fictions, right? And uh, we always thought that that was part of the greater argument for the book, which is to be an artist who's as you know, well-known as Jim is, to contend with the ideas of you that exist in a billion brains. Absolutely. Especially now. Especially now. There are... Uh, 100,000 me's on YouTube. Yeah. And <clears throat> I don't identify with many of them. So, you know, that's, that's just going to happen. And now we're witnessing the, the loss of IP and the, the uh, you know, uh, kind of corporate, corporal essence that goes on beyond your death and uh, them making movies about with James Dean, except without all the brilliant choices that James Dean made right. because of his conditioning and because of his special, you know, gift. Jim's always joked that you feel pretty secure for the next generation and the generation after. Yeah, but it'll be my great, great grandkids that screw me. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> so, that, anything. so in the book, it's really clear there is that pull between the commercial and the artistic, right? There's that pull. Um, and it's never completely resolved, really. I mean, but you come to peace, there's a peace that you kind of develop around it. But you I do- it's my grandson. Exactly. You know, I mean, he's really right. the one that spurs me into going, you know what, this, this is for someone else. This is, uh, this is something I wanna leave him. And, uh, and we, even when I make those, you know, four quadrant choices or whatever, a, a movie like Sonic, you know, there's an edge to the character because there's an edge to me. 
I don't think there that anybody is interesting, and you, you don't want to see a movie with a leading man who doesn't have an edge. You know? Sonic's, I mean, your character in Sonic is also a great portrait of the arrested child Silicon Valley billionaire who thinks yes. he knows everything and knows nothing. Yes. And these people are just spoiling the world in real time. So even with Sonic, you, that, to me, you made a no, real No, it was a valid character. Critique. Valid character. And, and, and again, he will, the, he will not know where the end is no. or where, when to stop. His, you know, his desire goes way past normal to the point where he wants to create some nanotechnology, some nano thing that it may cure something, it may cure a disease when he injects his little robots into your bloodstream uh, to kill nasty cells. But once he's in, he's there and he owns you. Just like, you know, prescription medications. It's, you know, there's an ownership that's going on that, that we don't control anymore. Jim, was this, this, this concern- uh, diabetes this concern with ideas and this concern with the larger culture, was that there from the beginning when you were doing stand-up? Was that always there? Was this kind of commenting on society, commenting on what's going on, the hypocrisy of things that you saw? Is that something you kind of grew up with? I think I came at things initially in more of a, uh, uh, you know, stemming from my mother and seeing my father be so entertaining from a place of, just wanting to import, impart joy and, and uh, fill the room with light. And I still have that, but uh, now of course I've, I'm a more thoughtful person and I have concerns. So as, it, as time went on, I realized you don't just help people by taking them off the planet, you know, uh, and being the carefree guy. You can also help them by, you know, laser focus on a problem. And, you know, so it's, uh, you know, that's, that's the important thing is that, is that I just want to free people from concern in, in whatever way I can. Uh, so that's grown over time, that, that concern. And, and also, I'm interested, I'm really interested in uh, doing something that's never been done before, or like, like uh, Robotnik, nailing the next phase of our lives, you know, in, in a comedic way, or in a serious way. So it's... Uh, it makes things much more exciting for me. And if I can pull off uh, actually being popular at the same time, I, I'll do that too. Like Truman Show was an interesting story because we went to dinner before the movie came out, Peter Weir and uh, Andrew Nichols and a, a bunch of people. And Andrew turned in the middle of the dinner and said, if this makes more than $40 million, we failed. And I said, F you, man. <laughs> I said, you can have meaningful art that's commercial and does well with a, with a multitude of people. You know, if you really hit the right buttons and it's done well, which, you know, Peter Weir, of course, one of the, yeah. one of the maestros, one of the great maestros. So you can have it all. You can have yeah. it all. And you've done that throughout your whole career. But, and another, another concern that is clear throughout the entire book, and it's clear that it's something that you've come to is this whole notion of fame and what fame does to a person. And it, it sort of puts up barriers. You've got this line, fame is a mind plague. We thought it would make us immortal as it ate up our precious time. And then yeah. you say raw appetite has always been the link between celebrity and tyranny. Yeah. And, and certainly in our politics of today, we see that more Which than any other time. Yeah, that was a wager yeah. when we started, and then Trump happened, and we thought, oh, and my we were, God. Wow, we're actually writing what's happening. Like paid off 100 to 1. Well, that, yeah, <laughs> that brings me to the... To, you know, reality show president, you know? So, yeah, no, it was, it was amazing to think that you've been writing this for six years, and just how current it is today, reading it during the pandemic. It's but just that's what like, happens when you're out of the way of the writing, when you're out of the way of the creation, when you have the courage to actually write down these ideas that go, oh my God, what is this going to get us into? And you actually follow it. There's a weird clairvoyance that happens. The guru you know? in the book says, dare forward. I dare forward, man. If we yeah. have one, that's probably our creative motto. Yeah. We'd have like a good idea at the end of the day. And then the next morning, someone would call the other person and say, but what about... <laughs> Yeah, that's He's still getting texts from Nick Cage. Dear forward. <laughs> that's terrific. Well, you know, as we're talking about, I mean, the book has, you know, many people talk about this time as a kind of strange end time in one way or another. And yeah. you do have an end time in your book. 
Well, yeah. I'm not giving, I'm not doing it's no spoiler alert, but there is an end time there. But your end time is a peaceful end time. It's this thing that brings peace, tranquility, and I'm wondering if that is a maybe it's not a comment, but do you think that during this period of such social, political, economic reckoning that there is hope in yes. some sense? You're extremely hopeful in the book. And I'm wondering in reality, seeing what we're facing is the same hope there. It's the crowding of a new world. It's, it's the labor pains of something completely new, I think, where the balance, a different balance will be struck, you know, and the people who are shaking the world and turning it upside down till all the money falls out are, are not gonna have a place in that world, you know, eventually. I, I believe that. So it is, uh, you know, it is an end. But, you know, as I said before, though, there's, there's a lot of uh, metaphor in this book. And to me, it's an end of the ego. It's an end of grasping. And, uh, and when you can have that end whenever you want, whenever you let go, whenever you let go of the future and the past, and you actually sit in the moment and you go, okay, he's a good guy. I like being with him. I like being with you. I like all the people out there you know i'm right here in this room you're my universe you know and the i've always believed that that time is an illusion and that uh you know eternity is not a measure of time it's the depth of this moment right now we're in eternity people always think of it as something coming mm -hmm. this is eternity and the sustenance that you get from the past and the future i mean the future is your daughter who you you know, you talk about so beautifully and your grandson. Um, and I know that they've been incredible influences in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, but, and that's then. That's how we pose uh, their, their little story in the book. Is I know, it's beautiful. Saviors, you know? They're my saviors. They really are. They have the most incredibly simple and wise and discerning wisdom that they impart to me every once in a while, you know, and, uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the, the passage you chose was perfect. Well, that was a good, there was original passage, which is, which is. That he reads to me. But, but which was about, the original version was about, he, they're both from the, this child, this beautiful. Yeah, from the book of mythology. Right. The, uh, yeah. Which he's reading right now. Yeah. He's oh, are you? Yeah. He's a classicist. I'm really impressed. I know, it was amazing. And I was just like, what? <laughs> anyway. no, so you chose a different passage than the- The original one was, was because was, he's in a depression, right? So the obvious was, you know, that uh, an anvil would have to fall for nine right. days, nine nights. But too dark on dark, you don't want. And we were, Jim said, it's just not. We noodled on it, we stopped work. And then it was, of course, you know, hang on, there's another. And, you know, pre-Christ, Prometheus is, is quite hopeful, right? right. <laughs> given where, what they were dealing with and the Promethean story mattered and then comes back in at the end with describing the people from the past who didn't make it into central narratives but did their part to keep the human candle burning. Yeah. And also, the thing that was also so beautiful to me as someone who's been a bookseller for 40 years and I'm also feeling this myself is that we have to acknowledge the people on whose shoulders we stood. So the scene that you have the series of scenes with Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. That was, you know, that went right, right here. Rodney was a mentor and, uh, and, uh, and a friend and somebody who accepted me, whether I was experimenting or whatever it was, he supported me completely. I'm still quoting Rodney when I walk around, when I meet young people that are striving to do something, you know, that you got to make the tank so strong, no bonehead can stop it. You know what I mean? Things like that, the simple wisdom that he had. And uh, we had a tremendous experience together from when I was completely green. And he looked at me and he said, have you ever been a love kid? You know, and, uh, he, but he enjoyed me and he enjoyed my father, especially my father was, so right there with him, with the jokes and everything. And we were like a tag team. We even said that one day, we're like a tag team of comedy. What tag team of comedy, that's beautiful, you know? And- uh, Joint. Yeah, yeah, he offered my dad a joint the very first time he Did met he really? Yeah, we were at Caesar's Palace and my dad came down to see me at Caesar's <laughs> Palace. And I, I said, yeah, let's go meet Rodney. And we walked in and he's smoking a joint. 
And uh, he said, oh, sorry, I said, uh, this is my dad, Percy, Rodney Dangerfield. And I said, hey, Percy, sorry about this, man. I'm, you know, I'm a fucking pothead, man. You know what I mean? And uh, sorry if there's kids out there. I said, I'm a pothead, man. You know what I mean? I can't, I, 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 it makes me creative, you know? And he says, you want to hit this, Percy? Like that, my dad immediately without thinking said, oh, no, if I, if I start that, I'll be up to two packs a day in no time. Like that, and from then on, they were fast friends. It was beautiful. You know? And I think I read somewhere that Rodney left you something, right? What did he leave you? Yeah, he left me. Uh, uh, Joan uh, uh, gave it to me after he passed. Uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful leather-bound box with his favorite shirt in it that he wore all the time, made him comfortable, and uh, and his pot pipe. Which was a great <laughs> help for him. So that's great. I also have to say that for those of you who haven't gotten the book yet, it's just gorgeous. The book itself is just absolutely gorgeous. I know that kid yeah. designed it. But I know that the artwork is yours, Jim, right? And then there's yeah. a really cool story behind the photograph. Yeah. You want to tell that story? Uh, well, it was the the time uh, we were in Hawaii and uh, I was working with Dana at about eight in the morning on Skype and uh, my assistant Linda Hill called me and she was emotional and uh, on uh, FaceTime and she said, Chief, the missiles are coming. And I said, what? And she said, the missiles are coming. We have 10 minutes. They're, they're supposed to land in 10 minutes. And should we get together? Should we try to meet up or anything like that? And I said, well, you're 40 minutes away. I don't want to die in my car. And uh, we said goodbye. Mm. And uh, and it was a hard moment. And uh, but it was not what I expected. My first concern was to get off the island on the phone to my daughter, and I couldn't get through. It was too busy. Uh, the second thought I had was, what an odd way for all this to end. And then I just said, what am I going to do with this moment? I decided instead of hiding under the stairs or doing whatever people were told to do, I just put a chair on the lanai and I looked at the ocean and I watched the, the, the whales jump out of the water. And I started into a list of gratitudes for the life I've led. And it was uh, so fulfilling. Uh, I, I could have gone on forever with that list. There literally is, are so many blessings that I can pull up in my mind. And, and, and I thought to myself at the end of it, when we, there was two minutes left before the missiles were supposed to land. And I was in a state of grace. And I realized this wonderful feeling that, you know, I had done something good with my life. And, uh, and it wasn't just about me, it was about the people, you know? Well, thank you for sharing that, Jim. And, you know, the tenderness, the tenderness comes through in spades all throughout the book. It really, really does. It was, you know, for a book that's all over the place, it was so tender as well. So thank I'm you. I'm glad I got to say some things about Chaplin as well. We, we, we were I was going to ask you about Chaplin's cane, the thing that yeah. you say yes. from fire. If they, if they check out my tweet with uh, the reading of the Chaplin piece, uh, it's about Chaplin's cane and, and the fact that, you know, he had political concerns and he was fighting the power all the time, but he wasn't fighting with a knife or a gun. He was fighting with a cane, this beautiful gestural tool that was like a baton of a maestro, you know? So <clears throat> I admire him so much for that and for turning all these kind of normal moments that could be kind of mundane into something beautiful. He didn't kiss somebody. He, he, he kicked their legs out from under them and caught them and then kissed them or something right. or whatever. There was always some beautiful approach. And that's, that's the dream, you know, to, to turn life into something beautiful, to turn pain into something beautiful. Well, we thank you for all, all that you've done. And Dana and Jim, I think, can't thank you enough for this book. And before we go to the audience questions, there is, I'm in Miami, so there is a question I have to ask you. What is it about mangoes? 
I decided last year, because I have a mango tree, uh, I decided that, uh, and this is symbolic of that, kind of, it's a monkey pond tree, but you know, it's kind of like the mango tree. It became a symbol of, uh, of abundance and blessings. And uh, that's how I felt in that last moment, like I had a full mango tree, more fruit than I can eat. And, uh, and that's how I feel about life. I go through life kind of expecting more, food, more fruit than I can eat. And, and I share the rest of it, you know, as best I can. Uh, so mangoes are, have become a very important symbol to me. And although this year has been probably one of the roughest in human history, and I'm feeling all of that, um, there are still mangoes. You know, this hard work that we did together, this book is a mango and we want to share it with people because it's given us such incredible uh, blessings. I mean, so much enjoyment, so much fulfillment that, that we want people to experience it. You know, how do you feel about the mangoes, man? Uh, I, it, it was also, there was an anti-Trump element, which was this narcissist wants us to just keep talking about him. <laughs> Why don't we focus on something that is the hard opposite of him which is this mango that's just sweet and asks nothing of you. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. it just shows up and it falls off the tree and it rolls down the lawn and you walk out of your house and you pick it up and you make juice out of it or you, you eat it right and there. It can even be a tree in your neighbor's yard. It can even be in your neighbor's yard and you can still, yeah. it yeah, falls okay. into yours. <laughs> so. So listen, it really, you guys, you guys did something very, very special. I can't thank you enough. Let thank me go you. to some questions because there are yeah. a bunch of people who've asked questions here. And um, this is from Lauren. Um, I have a lot of nostalgia attached to the film Ace Ventura. Uh, mm -hmm. Since I saw it so many times, um, did I just lose the question? Since I lost it, I watched it so many times as a child. When I watch it now, it almost feels like comfort food. Do you have a film like that that you do for yourself? Godfather. The Godfather is like my mother. I don't know why. I, I, I discovered something the other night because we watched it the other night and uh, we had a little viewing here. And uh, I just marvel at every frame of that film, at everything Coppola did. I'm, I'm, he's just, to me, uh, the film god, you know? And uh, so, I realized that Apollonia was the first woman I ever saw naked. Mm. I was 13 years old and I snuck into the drive-in movie theater in the trunk of someone's car so I could see The Godfather, this thing that I had seen in Mad Magazine. They had done the takeoff on The Godfather and I wanted to see the movie. So I went and I saw it. And I remember uh, when she drops her blouse in, on their honeymoon right. Right. with Michael, uh, a electric shock going through my body. And uh, I don't know if it over-sexualized me. I have no idea, but, uh, but it, it, it was, Blame it was it an impression. Apollonia. Blame it on Apollonia. Uh, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, no, but it was just uh, incredible. And that film never fails me. It, whenever I start feeling anxious, I put the Godfather on and it does something to me like mother. I don't know what it is. There's something about family and whatever it is. And I know there's terrible violence in it. And, you know, it's not generally what I'm drawn to, right. but my gosh, that, that story, it just never fails. It, it's perfect in every way. Mario Puzo's script and book is, is perfect in every way. And, and the direction is perfect in every, the lighting, the, the, the film treatment, the, uh, the, uh, the acting is superb, sublime. It, it's beyond a film to me. I couldn't and the second one as well. It's like, it's Godfather, Godfather 2, and Network, Padachiaski. But I think I'm going to go watch that at the end of this, all three, right in a row. Absolutely. But this brings, brings up the next question. If memoirs and misinformation, this from Lara, uh, was to be turned into a feature film, would you prefer to portray the character that is Jim Carrey or let someone else have that honor? I would absolutely let someone else do it. <laughs> I would play my father. 
Yeah, that's great. That's a great. That's what I'd like to do. If it ever it gets to that point, we want the book to have its own life, though, for a while. You know, we 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 think that that's uh, that's really important. And uh, you know, books oftentimes good ones end up being films, but uh, it's a it's an art all to itself, and it, it should have its own life. You know, with people like yourself who care about books, who who care about the words. You know, it, it's it's beautiful. Oh, I think we lost you. Yeah. Oh, it just you lost me. I'm there. I think. Uh, it's okay. Right. You. Well, we're here. We're here. We can see. We're not all there. We can all see. Right. All right, so this is from Joey. Joey says, I'm wondering what it was like to live with Judd Apatow and Adam Sandler. Was it a constant fight for attention and laughs, or did you have an equal dynamic as roommates' friends? But, well, I didn't live with them. I visited them. You know, I was writing with Judd, and we were friends, and Adam was, uh, you know, hanging out with a lot of girls. <laughs> he was very popular. He had some magic. I don't know what it was, but he was always, you know, with a different girl. He was very popular. And, uh, and uh, you know, just a wonderful guy. I love Adam so much, man. He's just one of the great characters that we know walking these days. Uh, so, yeah, I was so fortunate, more fortunate than I can even count. Uh, it's to have grown up with those guys you know, and, you know, Cable Guy was one of the greatest experiences ever with uh, Ben Stiller as well. And all those wonderful actors that were, I, I don't know if they were introduced in the film, but they were certainly early in their careers, you know, uh, fantastic. Owen Wilson and, you know, just, just great, great actors. So I was a madman and I decided, you know, after about my second movie that I wasn't going to get hemmed in and try to get careful, you know, so uh, Cable Guy, again, was a, another opportunity for me to do an outlandish character and make a choice that, you know, not many people would make. So it was so much fun. And uh, hopefully again someday. Well, here, here's something a little earlier, actually. Uh, Barrett asks, can you talk a bit about the behind the scenes life of In Living Color? Um, talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. And what that meant to you. Oh, everything. It was the doorway for me. It was my big break. You know, they allowed me to flourish in their garden, as we talk about in the book. Uh, you know, Keenan and Damon. I knew Damon, and um, we did Earth Girls Are Easy together. And, uh, and so I knew him from the comedy clubs. I always respected him as an artist. I thought he was just amazing as a comic. And uh, he took really brave chances. And, uh, and he used to watch me and I was going through kind of a fluctuation and in in an experiment trying to find my own persona uh, outside of the impressions. And he would start laughing that laugh like, ah, you know, like he just been stabbed. Um, and, uh, and I'd get off stage and he'd say, you're like the angriest guy I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And I said, I'm really not. But, you know, this, this is the place when I get to work all that stuff out, you know. And, um, and uh, we, we were just friends for a while. And, and he said, oh. you know, uh, my brother and I are doing this show. And, uh, you know, I had auditioned for Saturday Night Live and didn't quite make it on the show. And uh, the day I auditioned for Saturday Night Live, there was a guy trying to commit suicide off the roof. Of NBC oh, my. And I walked in. So I just knew it was going to be a bad day. Um, and... Uh, but when I went to the, to the audition for In Living Color, you know, it was a hallway full of people. It was like a, a cattle call. Maybe I got a better placement in the line because of Damon and Keenan. Um, and, uh, and when I went in, I just felt free with those guys. I felt free with them. And I felt challenged by them. You know? I had never done a character in my life, you know, uh, other than things people had made famous. So Damon said, you're gonna have to come up with some characters, man. I went like, wow, how do I do that? He says, just, just open your eyes, start, start watching and listening. And the next thing I knew, I was at Gold's Gym, listening to some uh, kind of humunculus woman who had like taken steroids and was like, like a beast. She came up and ordered a smoothie and uh, with this, you know, very gruff voice. And I went, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she became Vera de Milo. So thank you, whoever you are. Dana, let me ask you, uh, you are obviously so talented. I remember when mergers and acquisitions came out 
you know, as a bookseller, um, you write so beautifully and so well. What's on tap for you? What do you, where do you see your own writing going from here? Well, we've been COVIDed, so it's been actually like a, the writer's retreat that I've always wanted. So I've started, I made headway on another novel. Um, uh, so that's been great. I mean, it's been one of the only blessings of a tough period. It's been like quiet in which to write, which you don't get a lot of. Um, so, um, yeah. Do you feel compelled every once in a while to call Jim up and read a part of it to him and see what he thinks? No. <laughs> we've had our hands. He's had enough. We've had our hands full with it. No, because we've been, you know, like as you know, publishing in COVID is a job, right? Yeah, and absolutely. All reinventing the wheel. So um, we've been dividing the days between giving this book the birth it deserves and and um, and and working on the. And I'm busy over one. here. I'm busy over here walking around yeah. with my off with no shoes on. Look, I'm going to need a pedicure. <laughs> That's great. It is pretty wild that we've all. We've all become virtual in overnight, basically. Incredible. Who would have possibly imagined that? And here we are, I'm talking to you guys, you're talking to me. Uh, I wish that we could do this in person, and I hope the next time we will. I hope that there's a time you'll make it down here. I can promise you plenty of mangoes and a bit of a writer's retreat if you'd like as well, Dana. So that would be terrific. People should also watch the uh, the booksellers, the documentary. That's tremendous. It is. It really yeah. is about all the uh, antiquarian booksellers. Absolutely, it's, it's amazing. Really, really great. Yeah. Um, well, I just can't thank you enough for being part of this. I thank you from all of us at Books and Books. I thank Penguin Random House. I thank, uh, and I think we're going to bring out um, the wonderful Judy Bloom to sort of. Uh, let her magic kind of end the evening as well. I'm floating again. <laughs> is Judy somewhere? Is she? Is she on board? She is. Unmute my mic. There she is. Okay. There she is. Um, I just, in reading the comments, I just saw one that I really loved that said "hella deep," and yes, it was hella ah. deep, and ah. it was illuminating, and it was fun, but it was. Really, it was a great conversation. It was a very, very good conversation. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it so much. And we can't thank you, Jim and Dana and Mitch, enough for doing this. It's wonderful. And our literary community, you know, means the world to us. And we can't, again, uh, thank you enough for supporting us and our books in these unsure times. And thank you. And we love you. the world to the world. <laughs> we love you guys. Thank you so much. This has been a great, great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mitch. Bye, Mitch. Bye -bye. Thanks. Bye, Thank Bye, you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.